Hello and welcome back to the AA Ireland podcast. We have a good one for you today, as usual, a special interview. We'll be doing the usual bit of chat about the cars we've been driving, both myself and Paddy were away. Nice little experience there. Paddy, let's just delve straight into it straight away. What are we going to hear in the big interview today, just before we talk about some cars? Over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about different modes of transport. We had the Dublin Commuter Coalition in, we were talking about the benefits of potentially doing a uh, free trial for public transport. So I thought it would be interesting to hear from Irish Rail. So Barry Kenny is the uh, spokesperson for Irish Rail. He has been for a number of years now. And uh, we invited Barry into the studio here for for a chat. And it's a wide-ranging chat. He talks us through some of the future plans they have, uh, talks us through, you know, where we, why we are where we are in terms of rail networks and, and what the future holds. So um, Barry's look, he's a, a master at his art. So uh, it's, a, it's a nice interview to listen to. Let's listen to that now. In the event that your car requires mechanical assistance, the AA offers our customers the ability to log a breakdown in our app. Log a rescue in the app within minutes and have an AA patrol at the scene to assist you in approximately 90 minutes. Browse the AA app today to obtain great discounts from our partners, which includes perks like discounted fuel at selected Circle K garages across the country. So, as I said, we are delighted to be joined this week by Barry Kenny, who's Head of Corporate Communications for Irish Rail. Um, Barry is known as as Mr. Rail. I know he's going to smile at that uh, description. <laughs> Barry, you've been uh, you've been in this role quite a quite a while, right? I have, I suppose. I mean, the company twenty nine years, wow. having joined on a two week work placement, <laughs> and uh, asked, "Do you want to hang around for a few weeks?" But although the kind of wider job has changed, I'm the lead spokesperson for the company twenty five years now. Wow, yeah. I do remember you from my first time in AA when uh, we were over in Suffolk Street, yeah. where you would uh, pop in intermittently to do. Uh, <laughs> Morning Ireland or uh, yeah, it felt like we, we it felt like we squatted in your office some of the yeah, time. Yeah, Sorry exactly. about that. So yes, you're, you're sitting in in what was a Roadwatch studio, but is now a podcast studio. So, uh, so look, the reason we have you here is it's really to chat about yep. about public transport and, and Irish Rail in particular. So take us back, set the scene for us, I suppose, in terms of railways in Ireland. Yeah, if we. You know, it's often said, wow, and in Ireland there used to be an amazing rail network, yeah. but now it's gone and they're having to put it back. Mm. So is, is there truth in that for first start? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I suppose, not just in Ireland, but in a lot of countries, the kind of that, if you life cycle of the railways, I mean, our first railway line was 1834. So I'm not sure if I'll still be in the job when we hit 200 years, but uh, not all that long away. Um, and... There was a gold rush in railways uh, during that era. I mean, it was expanding it as a means of mass movement. There was really nothing uh, to compete. And if you take it that kind of round about, I suppose, the, the you know, First World War, the 1920s, uh, the network would have grown to about 5,600 kilometres. So a very extensive network in every county uh, uh, in the country. And, you know, there are some kind of famous lines uh, of that era that aren't there anymore, my in-laws in Tremorrow would always point to the water of Tremor Railway as an example. Um, then, obviously, as I suppose, you know, the car became uh, a greater factor uh, in lives, as costs became uh, an issue, it did uh, contract. If you, you know, through the 1950s, uh, uh, 60s, a lot of lines closed. And really, it was down to about a network of about 2,000 uh, to 2,200 kilometres uh, overall. So it's not this kind of total wipeout, I think, that some people paint it as, but obviously significantly uh, uh, more, as uh, was limited network than it was. But still connecting, you know, the vast majority of our major centres uh, to Dublin. But 
you know, the, the worm turns and, uh, you know, the, the, the congestion that the dependency on cars caused really has caused a renaissance. And it's not a new thing, but for public transport and the type of investment we've seen dating from the Dart onwards, which uh, is coming up on 40 years uh, next year, um, uh, is something that has then brought things like the Lewis, that's something that's brought things like the investment in quality bus corridors and then, you know, the the bias in favour of public transport in the current National Development Plan. Why do you think, uh, you know, can you point to one thing specifically that caused, I won't say the demise, but the reduction mm. in rail service? Was it the introduction of the of the car en masse? Was it policy at the time? It was both. It was, the, I mean, certainly the car, but there was a long era where, and I think Ireland and Britain shared this in a way that continental Europe didn't, where there was basically a kind of a lack of understanding of what public transport is for, that it was simply looked at in a profit and loss basis. I remember reading headlines and it was, you know, Aaron Aaron or CIE has lost this money in terms of how much our public service obligation or subsidy or whatever you want to describe it uh, was caused. Whereas in the continent, it was looked at the same way as health, education, policing. It was part of the functioning of the state. So while we were basically you know, policy was here to underfund the railway or unfund public transport and trains were turning into bangers and they were they were they were very old. Uh, I'm thinking when I started to work like in the in the in the in the 1990s, it, in Switzerland you have this extraordinary network. I don't think there's a major settlement that's more than five kilometers from uh, a rail station. Planning helps that as well. But you know, France, Germany, they all invested in high speed rail around the, around these times. And of course, as people started to I think travel more. Um, they saw, well, why can't we have some of this? And as the economy then kind of recovered in the 1990s and that era onwards, and money became available, frankly, and initially it was European money and ultimately it became uh, uh, money funded from the Exchequer as well, the opportunity was there. We always had the plans, but now we were able to act on them and, uh, and get people back. And people can see that when you put money into it and make it a fast and frequent service, that it is a great alternative and it is an essential part of living and, and planning and where we're going to put our houses and where we're going to put our businesses. A high capacity carrier, a dart train, eight carriages, can take 1,400 people, you know, build more of those and you can move more people and you can move more people more efficiently. We're a week on from a discussion we had with the Dublin Commuter Coalition discussing, you know, what are the alternatives to the car? Can we reduce our car use? And one thing that we had proposed at the time, possibly a little naively, was the idea of a free public transport trial. Mm. It, it set upon, it set out a, a discussion. Yeah. There was a bit of chat around it. Where do you see rail fitting into the picture from from your point of view at the moment? Well, we're we see ourselves being the backbone because, as I say, we're the heavy carrier in terms of an individual vehicle, train, light rail bus, whatever your alternatives are, we can move more people in a single go than any any other mode. So developing that capacity and with our DART Plus programme at the moment, which is going to allow us to double the capacity of the Greater Dublin area, treble the electrification, brand new trains that are really going to transform people's experience, we'll be able to do a, a lot more of that. It'll also build our network to allow us to run more trains to and from the regions. We're also, and I think it's a, a fair criticism of the past, is all, all the investment goes to Dublin. That's not the case anymore. The core commuter rail network, we are building DART frequencies for those three lines, Cork Cove, Cork Middleton and, and Cork Mallow. We're getting 
double tracking Limerick to Limerick Junction. We've got Moyross station in development, more new stations in the Limerick area. Galway is going to be transformed as well, Waterford also. So we will always be that mode. But I think one of the crucial things is not treating each mode in isolation is the fact that, uh, and I know the Dublin Community Coalition will be very, very strong on this. It's like the last mile, how you get people to and from your stations, what facilities you have there. Obviously, we car parking is something where there's pressure, but we've got to provide as well for more cycling facilities. We've got one of the things we're looking at with the new fleet, not looking at, will be part of the Dart Plus fleet is charging on board, including for things like e-scooters. So it is about making it easier for your full journey to have public transport. And from our point of view, we'd love it to be rail uh, uh, if that's part of your journey uh, in the centre of it. But the day you think of it as the full journey and our responsibility ends when you step off the train, that, that's, that's gone and it can never be there. As Irish Rail, do you have to fight for your slice of the, the overall pie when you're looking for funding, etc.? I suppose like every every part of infrastructure has, the you know, you, we, I would say literally, right, and, and seriously, oh gosh, no, whatever, you know, we, we don't. But if there's a finite pie, and we all know that there needs to be spending in, in, in health and in education and in energy infrastructure uh, in all of these areas, is, you know, we're, we are all fighting for that. I suppose what we have now is... Um, probably better kind of, you know, structures of it. So the National Transport Authority are responsible for, for example, developing the Greater Dublin Area Transport Strategy. So it's not a case anymore of, oh, well, we've got to give, you know, so much to this this mode or this mode. It's an integrated plan. So we have our plans, you know, in terms of the Maynooth and Drada and, uh, and Kildare lines and building that capacity. Metrolink is factored into that, how we integrate, how we work together. All of the the bus connects uh, and the changes in the, in, the, in the bus service is factored into that. Uh, things like cycle lanes as they're developed around the city uh, are going to be factored into that as well. So we are all working to a plan now. And I suppose the overall sector is the one that's really kind of I suppose, fighting for that share as opposed to individual organisations. If the solution is rail, if that's what makes sense from the assessment, then that's what we go with. And it's very much more, I think, kind of evidence-based, really, than it probably once was. The Green Party get criticised uh, quite often, actually, as it turns out. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, there's no justification to it. Is it fair to say that this government, though, has done quite a lot to develop the public transport narrative? Well, definitely, if you see that the kind of two to one public transport to private transport investment uh, really is being achieved, you know, we're seeing projects that we would you know, have been very much hopeful to see develop uh, in the past that are happening now. And, uh, and I think that's something that uh, certainly the environmental issue is at the core of. And, it, you know, obviously we have agreements for transport with uh, uh, Eamon Ryan, uh, who's very passionate about these issues and, uh, and progressing that. We would be very confident, you know, if governments change and governments do change, whatever, that there is a cross-party uh, support uh, for that now. Uh, and certainly in our engagement, you know, with, with politicians, all we're ever hearing is that people do want uh, more rail. But it it has been hugely important, I think, uh, to have that impetus at this point in time when the National Development Plan was being reviewed, you know, the fines were, you know, freight is something, something I suppose, that, that uh, in, in a kind of a motoring context we talk about. But, you know, the fines rail line is going to be re-established. Funding, funding for that is there. Moving uh, more uh, containers onto rail, which is an area where we, we, you know, quite simply, we're an absolute niche player at the moment. We can multiply that. Um, but, you know, certainly the fact that we have in every major city 
a live project happening that's going to improve the rail service. The fact that we have the biggest ever order for efficient, environmentally sound public transport vehicles. You know, 185 carriages on order. Our total fleet right now for the whole country is just over 620. And under the order that we have, the first 185, we could potentially order up to 750 of those carriages over the next 10 years. So the scale of what's happening and our ability to meet people's needs is just going to be transformed. I think it would be interesting for you to talk us through some of the big projects that are coming up because, you know, we know that public transport in general needs to improve a little bit and there is a desire to move into other modes. Talk us through some of the highlights that you see coming on stream. I think probably the the biggest and the most visible is the DART Plus programme and uh, everybody knows what the DART DART is, uh, but it is about extending the DART beyond the current Malahide and Hoth to Greystones, north to Drogheda, uh, west to Maynooth and the M3 Parkway station, southwest uh, to uh, Hazel Hatch, and also then looking at what can we do further south of Greystones and to build the capacity to Greystones. A lot of it is infrastructure, so it's signalling to allow more trains to run. It's closing some level crossings, for example, on the Maynooth line, because if you've got more trains, those crossings will be down all the time uh, and you're congesting everything. It's... Uh, new depot, it's new facilities and new track capacity, new extra lines running into Houston Station. It's also that new fleet, as I say, the, the, the DAR Plus fleet, it's being bought by Alstom. People know Alstom as the suppliers of the original Lewis. Um, and this will, as I say, take the original DART carriage is still operating today, which shows you the kind of life that you get out of DARTs, you know, almost 40 years later. Uh, but these will expand our fleet, uh, in time ultimately replace that fleet and between accessibility huge improvement between family facilities, cycle facilities, huge improvement. So DART Plus is that family of projects. Just in terms of the DART Plus, can you give us an idea of what capacity that will yeah. do? Will it increase or take people out of cars, that sort of thing? Uh, the simple, uh, I suppose, kind of answer to that is it will double the capacity. It will double the number of people who can take the train uh, in the greater Dublin area. It will bring hundreds of thousands of people uh, closer to high-frequency services. And it is about that dark frequency, that turn-up-and-go service for all of those ri- lines around. It will also benefit into city lines because, of course, if you've got more slots for trains to operate through it isn't only darts that are that are going to benefit from that going around the country then you know investing in the actual lines around the network to improve journey times which is uh, uh, critical um investing in the cork area to again go to that dart frequency on the on the cork area commuter network so uh, that's resignaling that's a new platform at kent station in cork uh, and it's double tracking between glanton and middleton which has been a hugely successful line since it was reopened in in, in 2010 um, in the Limerick area, there's the Limerick Shannon Metropolitan Area Transportation Strategy, which is a bit of a mouthful, LS Mats. Uh, but again, the potential for rail in Limerick is huge because we've got a, a number of both existing and disused lines and a network around the city. And the city, which suffers a lot, I think Limerick and Galway, probably the worst cities in the country for traffic congestion. Uh, we can build up the communities around those areas and have uh, more services uh, then in Galway, brand new station and Kent station in Galway city centre is probably the best located city station in the country. You are right at Air Square. Transform it from basically a one and a half platform now to five platforms. Ultimately double track between Nathan Ryan and Galway. More trains from everywhere. Opens up the possibility for new lines as well. You didn't mention Donegal. You didn't mention Cavan, uh, Monaghan. Any, any joy for those people? 
Um, I have to say, particularly Donegal people are absolutely uh, uh, very focused on the fact that uh, there, there isn't a, a rail service. And uh, uh, as I, we pointed, it was 1950s and 60s. It wasn't us, you know. <laughs> but nonetheless, it has been an issue that being people feel that, well, you know, you're talking about a national rail network, but here's a, a corner of the country that simply isn't covered. The All-Island Strategic Rail Review is underway. Now, that's the two government departments. It's the Department of Transport here and it's the Department of Infrastructure in the north. That will be published this year. And what it is about is saying, right, we're looking at this now from a, a long-term point of view. What are the opportunities for the existing network to do more? And what are the opportunities for it to grow and where can it serve? And it specifically is looking at Donegal. I, I, I you know, as I say, it is something that the, the two departments will be publishing in due course, but I think people that are looking for rail to Donegal, to other parts of the country that aren't currently served, there's probably never been a more, more hopeful time and we'll hear that news at some point in the coming months. When you talk about rejuvenating old lines, is there much that you can salvage from, uh, you know, a closed or, or dormant uh, rail mm. line? I suppose the best thing is if we still own the land, if we still own the alignment. Like, so if you take the Western Rail Corridor and an issue of, you know, huge debate, some people want a railway, some people want a, a greenway. But north of Athenry up to Clare Morris, Colooney, we still own all of that, right? So you're going to have to build a brand new railway line, but when you have the property, it's great. Really, if you're talking about old rail sleepers, things like that, no, you're not going to be using them. You are going to be putting down uh, new infrastructure. Obviously, if you no longer own the line, the issue is what's been built on it in the meantime. Have the local authorities, you know, protected it in some way? You know, Navin is a project that will be prob- uh, be looked like happening in the early twenty thirties, um, and uh, you know that was basically sold off. But there are sections of the old alignment that are still there that haven't been built on. Others not. But you also have to say, where are the people now? It isn't just a case of kind of taking the old route. It's where are we going to serve people better uh, and connect them into that transport network overall. Talk to us a little bit about fares. Fares have come down, yeah. and I think the result has been good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, it, you know there's been a good uptake. Are you at a bit of, Are you at a sort of a sweet spot now in terms of pricing? Do you think, or or do you think there could be improvements? Well, I suppose the, the two biggest changes in fares in the last year was the twenty percent cut for all general fares, and then the fifty percent young adults uh, fare cut. So before there were student fares, but now it's for for all young adults, which is a lot more equitable, uh, and that has been very significant. It's coincided with post-COVID um, and uh, it's coincided then with fuel cro- fuel cost crisis as well. So those three together, it's hard to isolate uh, each one, but I think there's no doubt that it has addressed probably some of the concerns people had about value for money in public transport uh, generally. Um, the NTA actually regulate the fares. I think some people probably think it's something that we kind of decide ourselves on a, on, on a whim, but they obviously, you know, the public service payments to us and the, 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 the fares is decided on. So things like the Leap Plus One promotion that happened over the new February bank holiday weekend, the NTA can decide and work with the transport operators say, this is something we're going to try. Uh, it certainly is, as I say, it, particularly in terms of intercity, which is back at pre-COVID levels. Uh, Dart and commuter are probably about 90% of pre-COVID levels. I think that th- those changes have been hugely beneficial and coupled with the, with the fuel costs, that you know, value for money kind of differential has, has changed significantly, and people perceive the value for money of a service is really a lot more positively. One of the discussions we had over the last couple of weeks was the introduction potentially of free public transport. Now we only had discussed a trial. Firstly, can I ask you what was your view on the trial idea? I think the thing is, you want to be able to cater for the people that will then look to travel. 
And, uh, you know, th- there is probably, uh, you know, if somebody's experienced, oh, it's free and you've got this kind of descent, you know, when it happens for 48 hours and people have an unpleasant experience, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good in the kind of longer term of, you know, promoting public transport as, as the right way to go. There are huge projects around building capacity now. And I think that combined with the issues like looking congestion charges and that, you know, can allow us to kind of look at those kind of promotions, look at very generous promotions, be it free, be it, be it, be it heavily uh, discounted. But I think kind of free on its own right now is, you know, it, it's a, does it get a lot of attention? Is it the solution? Will it kind of answer the right questions? I'm not sure it does. It, it's funny. It seems to be the conclusion that everyone came to towards the end of it. But the question that we kept putting back to people was, OK, but how do you get the people who can't be bothered mm. their arse to try public transport yeah. to give it a go? Yeah. There's a very small, promo- well, not very small, there's a proportion of people who, for whatever reason, just won't, right? I'm in the cycle lane on the way in in the mornings on the Clantarf Road now where there's huge roadworks and the traffic is backed up and it's just miserable looking. And you kind of say, well, you've got a dart right there. You've got quality bus corridors right there. The new bus connects road. Some of you just are never, ever going to do it, you know. And look, it's freedom of choice <laughs> in this world, whatever. Uh, and that is the case. But I think it is, you know, it's frequency, it's reliability and it's value for money are the three that come together. And uh, on all of those, I think, you know, that what's happening now and the type of improvements should answer that question for people thinking of it rationally and logically. Some people just want to be on their own and be, be, be in their car and sit there looking at traffic fumes ahead of them. Good luck to them. But is that where it becomes fair to start taxing people? You know, if you look at London, for example, mm. where congestion charge was brought in because, OK, guys, we've given you all the public transport and you're still using your car. So now we're going to charge you. Is that where it starts to become a little bit fairer to, to tax people in their cars a little bit more? Where you provide a very strong alternative, of, of course, you know, and particularly when we know that like from, you know, congestion, from productivity, from health grounds, from all of these kind of assessments, you know, you the better thing is to take public transport or is to take active travel that, you know, if the, if the bike lanes and everything have, have been provided for uh, as well, that the network is there. Then yes, then absolutely. If somebody says, well, no, uh, you know, you'll take my car for my, you know, cold dead hands, not the old Charlton Heston line in the, in the rifles or whatever, then okay, if it's that much to you, you can pay more. Where in the world has the utopian rail experienced in your view? I think it's hard to look into past the Swiss in terms of planning um, and in terms of how central it's been to the development of their transport network. I think, I think the, the, the stat is that it's five kilometres uh, is the furthest distance that there, uh, any moderate-sized uh, population base is from a train station. Um, and, you know, they are dealing with big Alps in the way uh, as well. So it isn't have been a kind of a, a light consideration. You've obviously got then, and it's not comparable to what we're facing uh, in any of our cities, some of the mega cities, uh, particularly in Asia, where... Um, the kind of kind of high frequency, high density that you can build around it uh, makes it extremely sustainable. But I think on a European basis, uh, the Swiss, we've been you know, looking at Denmark as well, an area that, you know, probably similar kind of population dispersal to ourselves, but who a couple of decades earlier made the very conscious decision we're building this around rail 
and the kind of transformation in, in, in usage of the network uh, and proportion of journeys by the network is, is, has been amazing. In a previous job, I travelled on rail in Germany quite a lot. Yeah. Wow. It was something else. Yeah. It was the, the the precision. It's a stereotype, but the precision was unbelievable. Well, well, actually, the funny thing is, if you if you if you Google that now, you'll see that news reports in the last couple of years uh, are about how there's been a lot of underinvestment in certain aspects of Deutsche Bahn. I think uh, of the so German network, and um, you're right. You know, in terms of I remember the old ICE trains. I worked for a summer in Munich. I think it was the summer they were introduced, actually, which date stamped me. Uh, but um, uh, some of those uh, it just shows you've got to continue to invest in it you know it can't be a case with public transport that you know right that's it job done it has to be continued to be maintained um, uh, and address those issues because even something as good as the German network can actually deteriorate So look in your view where has Irish Rail had its victories over the past few years is it, you know what are your celebrations what is, is Irish Rail pretty proud of currently I suppose over the over over the recent years, I think it has been the expansion of a lot of our commuter services around the network. So um, the Dart has had that ten minute frequency that you know that, that we've built, but dealing with the population growth on areas like the Maynooth line, uh, increasing that frequency, uh, getting new fleets in, like we've moved from one of the oldest fleets in Europe, probably in the late 1990s, early noughties, uh, to into the tens to having the youngest fleet. So that's been hugely important. I, I think the, the, you know, Building the kind of the customer service aspect uh, is crucial because a lot of what we tend to talk about as we develop transport is the hardware. It's the new lines, it's the electrification, it's 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 signalling, it's things like that. Uh, but our customer service officers now are in intercity trains. Uh, I think the the real customer service focus in our stations uh, is something that is really paying dividends as well, uh, and something you know we're delighted with too. Uh, and working, I think, with it, with the other agencies and the NTA, got to be said, and I, I know it's kind of something that's maybe not fully in the past, but working through COVID keeping everything going, keeping people safe, uh, both our, our own staff uh, and our colleagues. There was a real kind of collective effort there. Uh, we were all the agencies ourselves, the NTA, on weekly calls every day, making sure somebody had an idea that was working well, it was brought across all of public transport. Uh, and I think it's really kind of, you know, strengthened that kind of model that's there now where there's a kind of, a, you know, coordinating approach to how we address issues in public transport. What will the train of the future look like? So five years, yeah. 10 years time, will there be any differences both in terms of technology, how, how you know, the emissions, etc.? Well, you know, if you take the Dart Plus programme, I would hope that by the end of this decade, if you're travelling in the greater Dublin area and indeed in many other parts of the network, that you're travelling emission free, uh, that you are on, uh, you know, in stations and on trains with transformed customer information uh, that have improved accessibility. The new Dark Plus carriages are all going to have uh, automatic retractable ramps facilitating independent access, which is crucial, that everybody uh, can equally access uh, our services, that whatever way you travel to and from the station, wherever you're going, that there is an easy connection for you by your own means, walking, cycling, uh, uh, micro-mobility, uh, or by other modes uh, as well, uh, and that it is people's first choice uh, and uh, certainly we feel the building blocks uh, are there and uh, it's a funny thing because as we were saying at the start 29 years 
it always changes. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, I've been through recessions and I've been through investment waves and uh, and the whole lot. Um, and as you improve, the customer experience and the customer wishes for you to improve further. So it's always interesting. It always changes. Uh, but I don't think it's ever been, I think, as, as optimistic an era as there is now. Something that got a disproportionate amount of attention is the trolley. Oh, yes. <laughs> trolley I game. thought we'd make it. <laughs> t- t- talk us through the trolley trolley story. Well, I suppose the trolleys, uh, it was it was COVID. Um, it was pretty early, I think, probably before the, the national shutdown. We said, well, look, walking up and down uh, a train and, and handing these things to uh, people uh, isn't probably the sensible thing to do. So with our provider, we said, let's put it on hold. And then very quickly, it became part of the government regulations that basically you had to wear a mask and you couldn't take it off for any purpose other than taking medicine. So that obviously meant, well, we can't be the ones effectively pushing uh, something against the rules. So for the full two years of that regulation, there was no catering uh, up until uh, February of last year. So when it was lifted, and again, it was a relatively short notice, we said to the catering provider, OK, time to get back, time to, 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 to ramp up. They did everything they could, couldn't get staff um, and couldn't make the, the sums work for themselves. And ultimately, in May last year said, we're pulling out this contract. Uh, it has been quite uh, uh, difficult and, and certainly a lot more difficult than we thought to get a provider to fill that gap in the meantime and what's a bit heartening is how much people have missed the trolley yeah. uh, and I certainly haven't had a conversation like this in a radio studio or podcast that I haven't been asked about that uh, in the interim thankfully we will be back next month um, on the Dublin Cork route uh, now, we'd love to have had at least some service on all routes, but just the, the, the costs and the way that the providers were, were quoting for it. Uh, we're going with Cork Dublin on all services. That means the people travelling to from Kerry and Limerick will have a catering service as well for the vast majority of their journey. And with Belfast, we'll have about 50% of intercity. It, we, we have to do a full tender for the rest of it. But certainly if the uh, uh, interest in our catering services is as high as it seems to be. We will have record sales when those trolleys start rolling again. I was going to say, you're probably going to have a bumper year. <laughs> what, something I read about was the potential to put vending machines on trains. Is that something that's possible? We are going to pilot the vending machines, uh, definitely. We've, uh, uh, we've found a provider that can look at that. And basically, I think it's about finding what the habits are. Are people going to use it? You know what I mean? Is it, is it something that is the comfort of having the trolley come to your seat. Is that what people want in their catering service? Or are they happy then to be able to kind of pop up and down or whatever? So it is in the first instance to find out, is it something that people are interested in? We can look at expanding it then. We don't see it as a replacement. Uh, You know, you are talking about, well, what are the kind of unique selling points about intercity travel? Uh, And one of them is, you know, getting your sandwich, getting your cup of tea, getting the the, the muffin to to your table. So Barry, the future looks strong for Irish Rail. And, and, you know, where do you see it making up the numbers in terms of the overall public transport network in the next, say, five, ten years? Do you see it becoming stronger with the, with all this investment? Uh, it's going to be quite significant growth. We went to journeys of over 50 million just before COVID. We hope to be back, by, back at that level next year. By the end of the decade, we're hoping for about 80 million. Uh, so it is very much transformative. It is that kind of capacity and, and where people are building as well now. It's great. And we're part of it because we own some land around uh, our stations and uh, with uh, people like the Land Development Agency, you know, building up that. So where you live, work, where they, they socialise, that's going to be built around public transport. We're getting the 
infrastructure, the fleet, we're getting the, the customer facilities to bring people on board. And uh, it really is going to be quite something when we start to hit those numbers and the people make that decision and make it first and make it easily. Barry Kenny, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paddy. So what you make of that, Blake? It's fascinating, the experience. Uh, you can just tell from listening to that man that he he knows his stuff, you know. He's been doing it for a few years now, as you said, and that kind of knowledge comes across. Uh, quite passionate about it as well. I mean, you, you know, you don't, you don't have a career like that and spend that long without being passionate and really believing in what you're doing. But yeah, fascinating. Um, what I found was amazing, and I've seen the map since you actually did that interview of, you know, Ireland in 2023 compared to 1923. And the difference in the rail network, the coverage of just tracks on the ground is yeah. incredible. And it's interesting as well to hear the fact that in some cases they already own the land, so it's not too much of an ask to refresh and rechange some of the existing lines. They obviously can't use the old infrastructure, but they can certainly use the land, and that's the issue. Um, so, yeah, look, another interesting one. Hopefully we'll get somebody from Dublin Bus, Bus Aaron, over the next few weeks and months, because I think it would be interesting to hear from everyone, really, in this space. And, of course, that invitation is, is open to uh, the Minister for Transport, Damon Ryan, as well. We'd love to have you on if you are eventually listening to this. Um, so, look, other things we got to this week. You were um, in Spain. I was, yes, getting my son time. You can't really talk about the car itself, but you were driving a covered version of the ID7. That's right, yeah. So um, we'll probably hold off on talking about that for now because there's no point. You can't talk about driving impressions. You can't talk about the new tech just yet. So it's a car. It's obviously the spiritual successor to the Passat in EV form. Um, Nice, I mean, as much as you can say nice looking thing when you saw it without the disguise well i suppose what i could do is is just say to people we've kind of already seen yeah. a lot of this already we had the camouflaged one with the electroluminescent paint but you mm. can make out pretty much yeah, everything about the exterior but I, th- I think you're right let's not say anything the embargoes there's two separate embargoes on this between the exterior the interior technology so i'm just uh i'm, I'm keeping so if, if it's leaked it's not going to be because of me the other car that you were driving this week was the mg5 that was a really interesting thing and we'll get onto the Ionic 6 in a little while but the, the MG5 is a really relevant car and, and it's had a facelift and it's had a refresh. Yeah, big facelift and and actually the face was lifted as mm. in, you know, the front front end of the car um, aesthetically so much better now for me. The old one, I remember someone saying to me, that looks a bit like a VW Passat from 20 years previous, yeah, does, yeah. you know. It's kind of got, that, that does make sense. So at the back, uh, largely unchanged around the side largely unchanged there's a few little bit changes you know in terms of the chrome uh, the light shape but the big difference is at the nose where it had looked a bit dated that's changed interior as well huge leap forward I mean huge well, you were in the car a little bit as well yeah just a car that really impresses me uh, you know obviously you know we've been banging on about the MG4 MG5 MG5 I love the fact that it's an estate it has a little bit of a honest wipe clean personality but it's now upgraded it's a much more refined car the quality of the interior is really good the spec is excellent I'd happily drive one of those every day yeah. like it, it's on my short list if I'm to replace my old Nissan Leaf yeah. that's that's up there in the, the top two We're three four cars a bated breath to see what uh, car you decide to replace the Leaf with but um, the other thing uh, we did this week um, while Blake flew to Spain I flew to Kildare you didn't fly did you no I didn't I uh, okay. I drove down in, in the, to, to Kildare where Hyundai were launching the new Ionic 6 and I think the main takeaway from that well one that the cars are a little unusual looking the styling is it's interesting to say the least it's it's for me it's a car of three halves it's uh, it's got the front of a coupe Hyundai coupe the middle bit of an SUV and the rear of a Porsche 911 so 
that's an interesting melting of cars and you can obviously look at, at our socials to see the walk around tour we did of the car but I think the main point of that of the, the launch was most people thought this car was going to be a lot more expensive than it turned out to be you know I think a few of us were assuming it would start with a 6 it starts with a 4 so it's under 49,000 euro starting off and it's you know it's a well equipped car decent batteries 53, 77 so decent range we, we know break from those Korean brands that they tend to do an awful lot of what they'll say they'll do yeah, especially with the original Ionique and also the Kona. I mean, they were just range kings. Like, if yeah. we go back a few years before there was any talk of a Mercedes-Benz EQS or anything like that, you had the the Ionique, and uh, that was you know the nickname for that apparently is the wind knife. It just cuts through the air in terms of efficiency, and the Kona obviously was great as well. The Nero, and uh, I mean, losing their way was, was is, is the wrong thing to say, but with the uh, the Ionic Five, let's say it wasn't as efficient as. Okay. the previous ones had been so a little few people were a little bit disappointed in the efficiency of the Ionic 5 despite it being a great car all around of course but this one is a little bit different now but you know more about that obviously well yeah I, I mean the, the spec is impressive the range looks really good on paper and from the initial drive we had I was seeing really really strong figures in terms of economy now we will have the car quite soon for a longer spell so we'll, we'll probably hold off on doing a, a a greater judgment on it until we've driven it some mileage um, but but yeah, I mean, for me, I I prefer the starting of the five a lot more. So I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think it, the uh, the six is divisive in terms of styling, and I think they wouldn't admit that themselves. It's quite a marmite car. You're either going to love it or hate it. And I think, um, but they'll they'll sell two thousand of them um, in a full year, which is a decent number. Yeah, coming in at that price, and and it's the range and efficiency that's that's going to be key here. I mean, this is still built on that eGMP platform, yeah. eight hundred volts, a fantastic charging. Two twenty six kilowatt hour charging, which is. 10 to 80, yes, that's what it is. 10 to 80% in 18 minutes, theoretically. Now, we don't have those chargers in Ireland and the battery needs to be nice and toasty. And we know that from the EP6 that you're not necessarily going to hit those speeds, but it's it's looking good for them. Another car I spent some time in, and you did a bit as well, was the BMW i7, which was uh, something that we, we drove last week. I, I wasn't so sure about it at the start, but by the end of the week, I was, oh, I didn't like giving that car back. It's no range monster like the EQS. It doesn't it doesn't perform as 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 efficiently as the EQS, but as a car to drive, you know, every day, it's too big for a start. Like it was too big. It's five point three meters long. Uh, you know, it's almost obnoxiously big. But um, but as a piece of tech, wow, impressive. Yeah. yeah, it's gigantic, isn't it? What a tank! Like I remember when I first looked at it, and I went. Wow, that is a big thing. You know, like for example, I, I when I parked it in my driveway because I had it for a couple of days, I couldn't get the other car out of my driveway. That's okay, never exactly. happened before. Yeah, but you're right. It grew on me as well as a driver's car, and I, I took it for a, a spin down the, the back roads as well. And you know, for comparing it to the EQS, so just as a driver's car down the back roads. Yeah, it's, it's um, more engaging. Much more engaging. Um, Hans Zimmer had his way with with that orchestra. That expressive you know. mode is amazing. Incredible. Yeah, amazing. yeah. The only thing is then, if we're, you know, if we're talking about the EQS, if those country roads go past. 300 kilometers, then you want your EQS back because it's got a lot more range, it's that yeah, bit more efficient. Uh, yeah, look for me, I think if I was buying an EV tomorrow, I'd probably still go with the i4, that's my kind of favorite at the moment. But, um, but no, this is an impressive piece of kit. We are close as well to seeing the i5, so that's uh, that's imminent as well. So that's going to be interesting. Another point that came at the launch of the uh, Ionic 6, which I suppose is interesting to clarify, it surrounds the reduction in the SEI grant 
my understanding from talking to Stephen Gleeson, MD of uh, Hyundai here in Ireland, was that if you have ordered your car, it doesn't really matter when it's registered, within reason, that you'll still get the full grant. It's it's the analogy he said was, and the price they showed for the Ionic Six was a was a now price and a July price. So if you've walked into your uh, Hyundai dealership today and said, okay, I want an Ionic Six all-wheel drive finesse. And they said, okay, fine, It's but you'll get it in August. You'll still get the full grant. Yeah, because it's the dealer that applies for the grant for you. You don't uh, do anything yourself. Right. Yeah, so once you put down the order, they'll say, yeah, we, we've got a car coming in, ascribe to that person and apply the grant to that. You don't really do anything with it. No, exactly. So it's it's the people who walk into the, the showroom on the 2nd of July and say, hi, I'd like a, a, an Ionic 6, please. They're the people who now will get the reduced grant. They're still a little bit unclear, but they think, you know, as as far ahead as potentially October, that that will be in, in, in there'll be uh, that'll be in play. There is a feeling that the grants may change again early next year, but uh, for now, anyway, because it's a point that I I had got wrong. I had assumed that you needed to reg the car before the first of July, but it's not the case. So um, we 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 may talk about that again. Yeah, yeah, and let's remember it's not the only grant that's available. We've also got the the VRT relief, um, and prices are are changing yeah. daily anyway. You know, some massive price drops from Tesla. The Ionic Six has come in a lot, lot cheaper. Than but do you we think the expected. two are linked? I wonder. I wonder if Tesla had not done that, would the Ionic Six be the price it is now? Well, the cynic in me is screaming, absolutely yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, you know. Well, look, I think we will leave it there for this week. Blake, uh, what's happening in the next couple of weeks? Anyway, have we, uh, are we anything driving anything else interesting? Yeah, we have a few nice cars coming up, actually. It's going to be it's a, a, heavy a, schedule, actually. a busy month. We have a couple of uh, more consumer-focused uh, videos and experiments coming down the line, which are exciting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. emerging in, in our video content. We, uh, we did one recently. If you haven't seen it, we did a test using the Skoda Enyaq and Skoda Kodiak and showed the difference between driving at 100 and 120 on a motorway. So check out that video uh, if, you, if you do have time. So that's it for now. Um, from me, Paddy Common. And from me, Blake Boland. Take care. We'll see you next time.